welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to another Nightlight, or another episode of Nightlight Part 2. A uh, mini tornado knocked our guests offline on Tuesday, so we rescheduled for a Friday the 13th in 2020. So what can go wrong? I'm hoping uh, we get to do more than a seven-minute book review before the lizard people arrive or Godzilla and Mothra uh, engage in a battle in front of my house. Um, We had shows recently that were, I guess, travel logs to paranormal destinations. Uh, David Brody is going to give us another one in mid-January about Cam and Astarte's uh, stops in the Ohio River Valley that show where uh, Roman occupations were in Indiana and Kentucky. Um, I think at the end of January also uh, Matt Adams is going to return and uh, he's going to talk about his uh, uh, trip uh, he's on now, stopping a lot of um, Native American places. <clears throat> um, but uh, tonight we're going to tour the Nile Valley, and we have a tour guide who is very familiar with leading groups through Egypt. Uh, Normandy Ellis is our guest. She is an author of the recently published Hieroglyphic Words of Power by Inner Traditions. Uh, She has also translated the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Aside from being an author and tour guide, Normandy is a spiritualist, minister, astrologer, and certified clairvoyant medium. You can learn more about Normandy by going 
to both of her websites, normandyellis.com, and uh, Normandy is spelled N-O-R-M-A-N-D-I-E-L-L-I-S. Or you can go to twoladiestravelco.com. That's like twoladiestravelcompany.com. Okay. uh, Hi, Normandy. How are you? Hey, I'm good, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, how's your neighborhood after the uh, microburst or yes. really strong cold front came through on Tuesday? You doing okay? Yes. I uh, had to take a walk and kick some branches out of the way. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. They come through every now and then, you know. We're in... Yep. We're in the Midwest, so that's what it does. Okay. Well, th- things like that happen. So, you know, um, maybe Friday the 13th. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe Friday the 13th happened on uh, what <laughs> Tuesday the 10th. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll get ha- have smooth sailing through the next uh, three hours and 55 minutes. But That's right. <laughs> okay, so um and bef- you know before we get into your extensive writings about ancient Egypt um you just start off with uh, some of the basics like you know how, how did you become so uh, captivated by uh the ancient Egyptian culture well that is um that is a very interesting story um i had a friend uh who i grew up in the same neighborhood with him and i hadn't seen him in many years he went to vietnam um and before he went to vietnam the rosicrucians uh got hold of him cuz he was going to be a medic and they taught him how to assist souls in transition So I met him after he came back from Vietnam and we were talking about the Rosicrucians and about mysticism and so on. And he said Uh to me, Oh, you need to read the book of the dead, the Egyptian book of the dead. I said, Oh, sounds fascinating. He goes, no, you really need to read it. There's a book over there on the shelf in that bookstore. You should go buy it. I was like, well, I'll go look at that later. No, he said, he walked me across the, street and we bought it um so after that then he came over to my house that evening and said he had to leave and uh go down the river uh for his work and he had to leave his apartment so he left all of his rosicrucian teachings with me which you know he said don't show him around but it's i guess it's okay if you greet him i said okay so he left And um, I figured he'd come back for them, but I went traveling. And when I got back traveling, I was going to move out west, and he still hadn't come back for his books. So I took the books with me because he told me not to just give them to anybody. So I took his books with me. And about a year later, I went home and discovered that my friend had died. Um, And that was why I never gave the books back to him. 
He never called me for them because he had passed in the spirit. And I tell you, that Book of the Dead and all those Rosicrucian teachings acquired this power. You know, I mean, it was like I would get near the books and feel a zap. So I um, was taking a class in uh, my master's degree in English literature in a translation workshop. And we had to have two languages. I worked in Spanish for a while, and I didn't have a second language. And so the teacher said, well, what fascinates you? Maybe we can work with that. And I said, hieroglyphs. And he said, okay, get some good grammar dictionaries and and some various translations and start working with it. Well, I did. And the class ended, and I just kept working with it, and I worked on that same text. I translated it three times from you know, Wallace Budge's Book of the Dead, I used the hieroglyphs in there three times, front to back. About 10 years it took me to go through it. And um, my husband at the time wanted me to throw it away because it was uh, obsessing me, he said. And um, so we got in a big fight, and I was going to throw the books in the trash. And I'll, I'll say my husband at the time because this kind of solidified that. It wasn't the right relationship. But anyway, I was driving up the road with these books in the back seat, and I was going to throw them in the dumpster. And I look in the rearview mirror, and I see my friend sitting in the back seat next to the books. I mean, I see his spirit, you know, and I thought, oh, that's just me, you know, having a moment, you know, because we had this fight. And so I just kept driving, and about that time, we're at, Robert, my friend, reaches out and puts his hand on my shoulder, his spirit hand, and it was like I'd stuck my finger in a light socket. It just shook me from one end to the other, almost ran the car off the road, and finally, you know, I stop, and I look in the rearview mirror, and he's still there, and I said, Robert, don't you ever do that again. You scared the hell out of me, and when I acknowledged him, he was gone. So I got out of the car, I took uh, I took the tire out of the wheel well, and I put all the books I'd been working on in there, and then covered it back up so that my husband would think I'd thrown it away, like I said. And um, I kept working on those texts for another couple of months until a gentleman who had been in my class in the translation workshop, you know, 10 years before, wrote to me and said, you wouldn't happen to have a copy of that. I've started a publishing company. So that became Awakening Osiris. And that's how it started. Okay. Interesting story. <laughs> so and, it's a uh, long story, but all true. <laughs> uh, it's fine. And, and, yeah. That story... As a, a nice segue into um, kind of my first question uh, around the book, uh, in, in, in the foreword, your friend uh, Nikki Scully writes it, uh, you had the sight from birth. Um, what that does tie in with what what you just said as well as uh, 
Shoina, you do bring in another view of the hieroglyphs that yeah. um, mo- most of us yeah uh, we we don't understand the line. you know they, you know the artwork's interesting but uh there is more to um, the meaning uh, uh and, and you know you you expound upon that throughout the book uh, can can you uh, explain what Nikki meant by well, the site yeah um that your intro goes to in two different directions and I want to approach both of them. I think what Nikki meant is that I had I was a reluctant clairvoyant. I had always been a reluctant clairvoyant. Nikki um taught a workshop one time and she wanted me to co-teach it with her, becoming an oracle. And I said, "No, I can't. I don't know how to do that." And I mean, I literally ran away. <laughs> It's like, no, I'm not teaching it. And as it turned out, she wrote a book on on, uh, becoming an oracle. She wrote it with someone else. But I ended up going to where I live now, to Camp Chesterfield, and I began studying to be a medium because it had always been in my family that that there was someone with sight. Uh, My great aunt, um, Arzelia, had studied at Camp Chesterfield, and that's what led me to come up here to study, you know, how to be a medium. I just wanted to be a, I thought it was like I wanted to be a better writer. But if I could see, then I thought that would improve it, you know. But I've always seen spirit ever since I was a kid, um, mostly family, but uh, not necessarily the family of other people, you know, in the way that a medium does. Um, so, And I had a great-grandfather who was, uh, medium and my mother had mediumistic qualities, though she didn't uh, acknowledge them either. It was not something that you said you wanted to do when you grew up, you know. Um, so the other thing I think is that uh, once I came to Camp Chesterfield and I learned how to become a medium and how to um, trust what spirit, the information that spirit was giving me. And bringing to me, I learned to work more with spirit. It always had occurred that while I was writing, something that you would think of as being synchronistic, you know, like I would write short stories and I thought I was making things up and I wasn't, you know, they were actually real. Um, And I would find out later and think, oh, my God, did I really write that? You know, how could I have known that? So there was a little bit of spooky factor in it. Well, anyway, after I learned to be a medium, I began to trust the vision I was getting. So this book that we're talking about, Hieroglyphic Words of Power, um, I've been fascinated with hieroglyphs for 30 years, but I didn't know how to write a book about them. So I sat down and began to work with my spirit guides and said, okay, you tell me what you want me to write. You tell me how you want me to say it. And so for about the process of two two years, I guess, I would sit down every morning with my guides with a composition notebook. And at 8 o'clock, exactly, I would start writing. 
And I closed my eyes, and I would just write. I didn't know what I was writing. I would just write, 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 write. And at 8.30, the pen would fall out of my hand, and I was done for the day. Be in the middle of a sentence, but I was done for the day because that's how much time my guide said I could do it. Um, So finally, my guide came in one day and said to me, I'm going to pass you off to another guide, and you can work with this particular guide longer. Um, So... That's that's what happened, how the book got going. But, I mean, if I missed my 8 o'clock appointment, I'd be lying in bed and I would feel a slap on my face to wake me up, like, you go down there and start work. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the but, whole book is, like, almost channeled, you could think of. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, you, you did... Uh, preface your answer you're working in spirit uh, and in the early stages of of this book you do draw attention to and when you're just looking at the hieroglyphs the ancient Egyptians placed far greater uh, personal or cultural meaning and, and like it said spirit it said, so it, like there there was something far more important behind the symbols than how you know if we're just looking at you know the English letter a today it's like okay, right. it's uh a uh triangle with a horizontal line and that's it. I, it, it yeah there's not a whole lot more behind it but in ancient Egypt there was something far more greater than just a symbol uh, can, can you explain a, a little bit more about that and as you know just kind of set the stage as we uh, uh, you know just kind of get get our first lesson in a uh, foreign language. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, that that uh, very angular A, if you turn it upside down with its point on the ground toward the bottom, you actually have a cow with its cow horns straight up. And then that's actually where an A started. It was turned on its side over the cultures that it went through from Phoenician and Sumerian and Greek and, oh. and so on. But it actually, you know, it actually was a, started out as a cow. <laughs> so um, a lot of what, I did not know, you know that. The, yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't know that until uh encyclopedia salesman came to my house when I was a kid and I was so excited with the encyclopedia that I, that was something that I learned in it. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, so when you're looking at Egyptian words, you first of all, you have words or letters of the alphabet that are simply sounds, you know, like a P or a B or a T. Okay. And so they have to have a, a little sign, you know. So um, uh, there are bilaterals that combine two they're one sign but they combine two sounds 
like W-H or T-H, like wa or th or bruh or something like that. That's T-street. Right, right. Then there's three, which are called trilaterals, and that's where you have three sounds, like an onk. You just draw the onk itself, but it indicates three sounds. So when you write Tutankhamun, you're just writing, when you're writing the onk, you're just writing the onk sign. Um, And it could be life, and it could be, you know, it could mean a likeness of, or, you know, it has multiple meanings depending upon what other non-sound hieroglyphs are around it, you know. So not all hieroglyphs have sounds. Some of them are just, uh, I guess we would say connotations, you know. Um, Sometimes the onk is written and what it actually indicates is a sandal strap, you know, but it's the same shape and sign, you know. Uh, yeah. So, um, if you are if you are trying to figure out how to pronounce the Kemetic language, that's what we call the hieroglyphs in the Egyptian language. If you're trying to figure out how to pronounce it exactly, the closest we can get is looking at how it sounds in the Coptic language. You know, Coptic Christian, because that mm-hmm. derived from Egypt. But for the most part, they didn't write with vowels, just like the Hebrews did. You know, the Jews didn't write with vowels. The Hebrew language does not have vowels in it. And uh, they have little vowels that are above the consonants. They were implied later, but originally they weren't there, like the Egyptian. And the reason that the vowels aren't there is that the breath is sacred. And so if you want to preserve a language which has the breath of God in it, you don't put the vowel sounds in there. And um, so that was a, a way of of preserving the magic and the power and the hieroglyphs was not writing the vowels in there. Okay. So... Okay, so... We, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, so... Like... Those comments in mind, you, you start off by using an example of Heka. Right. Uh, that's, and you know, kind of that your uh, description of that word you know, sets the tone for, um, you know. The rest of the book. Uh, okay, so let's let's go let's start with Hekka. start there with Hekka. <laughs> yeah, what the Hekka have we got to lose? <laughs> um, okay, so that that word is written with only um, two phonetic hieroglyphs, an H sound and a KA, a bilateral, a Ka sound, Hekka. Mm-hmm. And so we're putting the E sound in it because that's just pronounceable, you know. Okay, so the H sound is um, a piece of twine or string that is uh, in a wick, rolled up into a wick, and it's got like three loops on it. 
And that's a very strong H sound. There's actually three H sounds in the Egyptian language. There's like a real soft, uh, breathy H, like you would say house, you know. There's um, a KH sound that's very, it's very uh, Egyptian, you know, sounding like, you know, it's like, like that. Um, but then the H sound that's, that's sharp, like you say the word hot, you know, and it's very vocal and breathy, ha, you know, that's the H that's part of Heka. And so you can look at that and think about, okay, so this, this word, all language, if you're a poet, you're thinking about how language is being used anyway. And anytime you're using a word that has that kind of strong sound in it, you know that it has a strong intention behind the language. So the next word is ka, K-H, and it's the image of uh, two arms that are upraised, Um, in prayer they are kind of in the shape of cow horns where you're you know it's like if you were praying and you opened your hands out you have your elbows at shoulder height and your arms are you know at a right angle that you've got both arms like that that really opens up your chest and um, you can feel that stretch across your chest and across your heart and that word ka means spirit, and so you're opening yourself to the light. You are opening yourself to spirit to work through you, which is what you would be doing if you were working in a magical, uh, mystical tradition like the ancient Egyptian language. You're asking spirit to come in and work with you, okay? And so that ka is the animating principle of the universe, um, it's one of the nine spiritual bodies of the ancient Egyptians. So Heka, that is just the um, the sound of those words, but the images inside those glyphs also indicate that there's a strong intention, a fire, a light, a flame, on that H-wick sound, Ka, with the spirit that is opened up. Okay, and then the next thing that you get are hieroglyphs that do not have any sound attached to them, but they give a flavor to Heka. Okay, and what that is is a rolled-up scroll tied with string, Um, and that's the sign for um, an incantation, um, a prayer, and anything that a scribe has written. And then there's three little seeds that often accompany it, that means multiples, so that, you know, Heka is magic that can be used in multiple ways. And when they defined it, the ancient Egyptians defined it as um, words of power. That's So hieroglyphic words of power. They defined Heka as words of power. A lot of people define it as magic, and they say it was the nuclear energy of the ancient world. Because if you could think something and you could speak it and you could put the emphasis and your will behind it, you could manifest it. And so that's why Heka was so powerful. Okay. In- interesting. And you know, 
at the start of each uh, segment of uh, you know the symbol like heck a of a photo of the uh, it's like uh, uh, upturned hands it's like mm-hmm. a, a squared U <clears throat> appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you also uh, d- discuss uh, ha- how the ancient Egyptians I- included many uh, birds. There's like, uh, or is it? Yeah, they called it the language of birds. (laughs) Yes, yeah, it's like sixty different birds are uh, used. Uh, Yeah, for for um, page forty, get the A K H. Uh huh. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, maybe just do a, a quick. Review of the numerous use of birds. I I thought that was really captivating. Okay. Um, really an interesting word. I mean, because they have a lot of onomatopoeia words in in their language, and so "ock" is um, it's the sound a bird makes. You know that particular fishing bird, "ock, ock, ock." You know, and it's flying over the land um, that it says its name and a lot of the animals that they have in there uh, the animals will say their names but the birds themselves are really very very interesting because I think in part it's because the Egyptian landscape is without um, a lot of hiding places for the birds and so they, you see them a lot on the banks. They're often in the sky. Um, I, I know when I am on the Nile itself, and I'm really, you know, floating down the Nile and and um, seeing these birds early in the morning. And I'm looking at this tree one time, and I thought that tree has the most beautiful white blossoms. And then all of a sudden. I hear these wings, you know, and it's these birds that have been resting in the tree overnight. It's just amazing. The birds are one of the most amazing spirit-filled animals that you can see in Egypt. You know, a lot of the birds in the Bible, you know, come that idea comes from the Egyptian landscape as well. So Thoth, mm-hmm. the god Thoth is a bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the god of wisdom, he's related to the ox. Um, the, and there's a god he, named. He's a heron. Geb. He's he's yes, he's a heron. Yes, um, the god uh, Geb is a goose, so that's father goose as opposed to mother goose. Um, there is. Let's see. I'm trying to think. Ball. Horus Ball. the hawk. Yeah, Horus the hawk. Uh huh. Um, gosh, there's the phoenix, which is called a benben. So that's another kind of bird. Um, the ba, which is the soul, it's a human-headed hawk. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of different birds. Isis turns into a kite. 
which is a small falcon. Um, there's uh, Mut, the goddess, who is a vulture. And then there's Nekbet, who is a vulture goddess. Uh, they were the sign of the mother. Um, a lot of times you will see vultures written at the back of like Cleopatra's name. And um, it means that she's a mother. She's the mother of, you know, a particular child. Um, and so that's what, because she lays an egg, you know, and, and Mort, they wore that, you know, crown of the vulture goddess on their head. Um, yeah, so lots of, diff- lots of birds, lots of different birds. Yeah, and, and, uh, uh, Normandy. Like I was saying at the start of the show, you know, you thoroughly um, go, go through, you know, like A to Z of all the. Um, uh, characters in the Egyptian l- language, um, and you know, starting off each section with a photo of each character. Uh, you know, are how are you? Um, are those your photos found on? The uh, temples, you know, if you look at your website, there's all the photos you took. All all the temples are just covered with all of these uh, uh, hieroglyphs. Yeah. I I didn't take the photos. Um, Those photos were by a woman named Osset Roan. A-U-S-E-T-R-O-H-N, and she's a professional photographer. And we would go through the temples. And I tell you how uh, we found the pictures is that people would come to me and say, Normandy, Normandy, look at this. What does that mean? And, and so after a while, I got used to knowing where particular hieroglyphs could be found in which temples. And so as we were going through on one of our trips, I would pull a set aside and I would say, here, take this photo here, take this photo here, take this photo here, so that we could get pictures of all of them for the book. Um, Now, a couple of them were broken, you know. That is one of the things that you notice when you go to Egypt is that a lot of the temple walls, they're very fragile. You could put your hand on it on a a bas-relief hieroglyph, you know, the ones that stick out and take your hand away and the glyph would be gone. It would just have crumbled, you know. I I can't tell you how many times I have to tell people, don't touch the walls, you know. Put your backpack on on the front of your chest, not on your back, because I don't want you rubbing up against the hieroglyphs, but because they're really fragile. Um so anyway, yeah, I had all set go around and take the pictures of the hieroglyphs. And then a few of them we had to Photoshop. But to tell you the truth, I wasn't going to include hieroglyphs uh, pictures at first. 
um, although she did a beautiful job when I asked her to do it, I always oh, believed that, yes, yeah, she did. Um, I always believed that it was better to um, write the glyph yourself. So when I was translating those, that book of Wallace Budge's, The Book of the Dead, I wrote everything by hand in a notebook. I wrote every single glyph by hand in the notebook. And then I would go back and on the opposite page, I would begin my translation work. You know, and I really felt that, you know, it's kind of also like when I was talking about working with my spirit guides and I work in a composition notebook. There's something that happens when you put your hand to the material that's different than when you just type it or when you take a photograph of it. You know, it's like the connection between your hand and your brain and and all those nerves that go from your brain down your arm to your fingers, they get infused with that energy. And I think that it's very um, strong and that what comes out is much, to me, it is much more powerful. So I, I, um, you know, if you were a magician and you were going to write a spell, you would do it by hand. You know, you wouldn't write your spell, type it out on a piece of paper and, and, put it under a candle you would want to write it by hand you would want to inscribe your candle you know with a um, stylus you know and write a hieroglyph on your candle with the stylus you know okay and just, does you yeah you know, and, and right as you were Discussing the uh, your preferred way of actually okay. writing something. I, I on the same way. Uh, you know, I just glanced down. Uh, yes, you know, so you know, made a note to myself. Uh, you on page uh, 104 you talk about uh Hecka embodies the idea that thoughts are things right you are okay just you're making the like physical mind connection with uh writing um Yeah, I think that a lot of people don't realize how connected their thoughts are to the reality that they're living. And I believe that that was one of the things that was so powerful about the ancient Egyptians is that they they made that connection. You know, not everyone could write, but everyone understood that they were living inside the body of the divine, that the natural world was the body of God. And so they they understood that to begin with. When you start trying to write as an abstraction, I think I think that that's what disconnects us from the world, you know, like the Roman letters A B C D disconnect us from uh the vulture that is the ancient Egyptian A. You know, or uh, 
the leg that is the ancient Egyptian bee. You know, they're not they're not physicalized anymore. And um, and I think that that's that's a great loss because we're not connected. Our thoughts aren't connected to the things of our our life anymore. Um, and thoughts are things. Thoughts make the reality. That's you know, our body is ninety nine percent air. Really, it's just molecules floating around. Mm-hmm. And we think we're real. <laughs> But um, yeah, the the reality of it is that there's, it's the thought that's holding it all together. It's the perception that's making it real. Yeah, there's uh, – I'll come back to that. There's – I think I started to jump ahead of myself – a little uh, and say that and get, give you another uh, get uh, talk about another example and then then we'll start tying a couple things together. But um, okay, it, 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 with um, you know, the dog star serious. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's so much that was. Play, uh, emphasized about the, the Nile flooding, um, you know, this, the, the uh, flooding started the new year, and uh, that was in uh, like springtime when uh, uh, the snows of Kilimanjaro are starting to melt. Yeah, summer. The, yeah, summer. Okay, so, so, so uh, you know, what about, you know, we're talking, what, 1,500, 2,000 or more uh, uh, B.C., you know, the, yeah. you know, about the same time in uh, the – Orkney Islands, you have uh, the Celtic peoples uh, starting the new year on, uh, I was at February 1st, observing it from um, the Stones of Stenness. So I thought that, you know, that was uh, just an interesting way a, a, a difference between the two different cultures, and you know, you, you, know, you do do go into the flooding a, a lot in yes. your book. I I, I I really liked those numerous sections. Yeah, the the it's very important the flooding of the Nile in a culture that only gets two inches of rain a year. Um, so that melting of the snow caps at Kilimanjaro, which is one tributary of the Nile, combines with the monsoons in Ethiopia, which are occurring about the same time, and these two tributaries of the Nile, the White and the Blue Nile, join together at Khartoum, and they only do it once a year, and they rush through the land and they 
burble over the rocks and they, you know, they push the effluvia that's been built up for the past year out of the country and push it out, clean it out all the way down to the Nile Delta. And the water, you know, it's got all this black, rich, earthy soil that it's pushing down the river. And as the water spreads over the land, it's depositing this black earth, which that black earth, that agricultural land, that uh, you see images of Osiris with his very dark face. And that's the image of fertility, the image of uh, fecundity and possibility. It's all that black, rich soil that is part of that culture. And Set, his brother, is uh, red-faced, and he's red like the desert, you know, like the the sandstone in the desert. And so it's interesting to me where you have these these two brothers who are um, side by side. You can stand in Egypt with one foot in the dark soil and one foot in the red soil. That is how strictly divided, you know, where it stops, where the flood stops, it stops being fertile. And it's really very interesting. So you have a a brother who's a hunter-gatherer, you know, uh, who lives in the desert and hunts game, and another brother who's an agriculturalist. And so that's really how two communities uh, argued with each other over who had, you know, who had the responsibility of the land? Were the hunters going to win or the agriculturalists? I mean, same thing happened out west, you know, the cattlemen and, and the wheat farmers. You know, it's kind of the same story. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 and it, the new and you. Yes. In you is the symbol for the flood, the uh, flood flooding, right? New, yeah. Okay, that's right. Put putting things together, and yeah. When you were talking about uh, a little bit ago about using one's uh, mind mm-hmm. you uh, do in- include uh, on page 105 the master Jesus told his disciples in John 14 chapter 14 verse 12 all these things I do you can do also an even greater than these. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's um. We can talk about uh, some other examples, but you know, you're starting to you also introduce into your book uh, many of these concepts that you know, we've, you know just you know, been you know covering uh somewhat in in depth for uh you know, just to get started but it, the the these same concepts are 
reappearing um, uh, about 2,000 years later in the New Testament, in, in like the John uh, passage I just uh, read. Right. I thought that was interest, interesting how, how you're making these correlations. It, it is interesting because, um, I mean, I have spent a long time looking at uh, the universality of Eastern and Western traditions, you know, and I just spent two years looking at what connects them across the uh, Silk Road, you know, with Zoroastrianism, and, and uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that um, what we think of as a pagan religion uh, was actually hidden and written in scripts that were um, probably beginning to be written some years before the Gospels were written, but they were hidden in these these texts. You know, the Gospels weren't written until like, uh, around you know fifty years after um, you know after the turn of you know the first century um, so Christ had only been had been dead like maybe forty years or so when some of the gospels were being written, but these other texts Nag Hammadi texts and Gnostic gospels and so on were being written and sealed into caves in Egypt for a long time uh before that. That whole, you know, culture around Alexandria was full of uh, philosophers and religion um, of all stripes. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of crossover. You take, you take um, Psalm 104 and the hymn to Aten, and you put them side by side, and they are almost exact copies of each other, you know. Go figure, yeah. right? <laughs> right there, um, with uh, uh, so, okay, so, Psalm one hundred four. Um, we we have uh, you know sticking with the Old Testament, like. Uh, it, you just mentioned uh, there's uh, the first kings uh, eighteen uh, verses ten through twelve and samples from John and Acts where you know, you're talking about some teleportation that. Mm-hmm. The, the ancient Egyptians were interested in, and we find the same thing. Uh, like, uh, I, uh, I might be a good, good explanation for uh, Jesus walking across the lake. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you explain that. Yeah, well, it, it's not just a fable, is it? You know, I, I actually teach a class in uh, called Spiritualism in the New Testament, 
Um, they've also got spiritualism in the Old Testament, but a whole list of things. Like if you look in First uh, Corinthians uh, verses one through twelve, it gives you an entire list of all of the spiritual talents. I mean, what you know, like speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and healing and um, all kinds of things. You know, all these things, and that these things that Jesus did, we could do them as well. It's a it's a matter of learning that spirit moves us to do these things. Um, and having become a medium, you know, I've seen I've seen some amazing things happen in uh, a room full of mediums where things will materialize. You know, that's a whole different subject. But um, yeah, it happens. It happens. As you know, um, spent ten days or so reading uh, your book. Uh, There were a number of these um, examples we just read, and there's. Many yeah. other ones. Uh, you know, uh, mainly, uh, quite a few from the New Testament, where you are drawing from your your observations. In Egypt and you know, making some uh, correlations, like uh, you know, this same idea from Egypt is also uh, had an impact on uh, uh, Jesus's philosophy. Uh, what, what some of the other New Testament uh, writers. Uh, we're thinking it, 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 it's just uh, interesting to see ancient Egypt's uh, legacy carrying on into the New Testament uh, what 1500 years later uh, uh and even overshadowed maybe some of the Greek thought, uh, you know, a little bit more contemporary, maybe just you know, a little earlier, but yeah, you know, somewhat contemporary uh, Greek thought. It, 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 it you know really says something about how uh, much of an uh, impact the Egyptian. Uh, pharaohs and uh, priests, philosophers had uh, throughout the ho- Holy Lands for uh, two, three millennia. Right. And I think that, you know, we're talking about a culture that lasted 3,000 years that we know of written history, but probably. You know, 2,000 years before that, they were building up to it. Um, Mm -hmm. 
that's that's a much longer culture and civilization than any civilization that we can even think of, you know. Um, And it's interesting to me when you read um, texts by the ancient Egyptians, even in the Old Kingdom, you know, like at the end of the 6th dynasty or the 7th dynasty, and they're looking back at the building of the pyramids, and the scribes are saying, we don't remember how they did that. You know, <laughs> like, what? You don't remember how they did that? Because it was something, it was like this brilliance that came in there and then it vanished, you know. Um, and then more than that, um, we had equality in the old kingdom where there were women healers and physicians and and a lot of high priestesses, which disappears in the new kingdom. So the equality vanishes. And and I hate to say it, but, you know, it, it, you can look at what's going on in, in the world now. We're not getting smarter if we forget where we came from, right? That's what it comes down to. That's it. And, well, okay, that... Uh... I just looked down my notes, and there is <clears throat> a you know you did discuss uh, Gandhi's seven principles of will. Oh yeah. Uh, as you know, well, he you know, he he wasn't Egyptian, but uh, he he is he, he's not forgetting. Um, he's not forgetting his, his right. history. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what's true in one culture can be true in another culture. Right. And, and yeah. You know, with some of these um, <clears throat> examples from the New Testament, um, <clears throat> it, it it just really seems like uh, it, when Joseph and Mary took uh, Jesus to Egypt, uh-huh. it, it just wasn't uh, you know, a few day walk <laughs> and right. you know hide out for. Uh, you know, a, a week and, and until things blew over with Herod. Uh, yeah, they were there for a lengthy stay. Yeah. And uh, 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 was it in Matthew? It says you know they were there for uh, you know till till the end of Herod's reign. Uh, you know, de- you know death. Uh, they it, it was. You know, a a considerable uh, period of time. Uh, you know, when you start looking at all the information you present, uh, you know, you know, with with the um, symbols, you know, uh, sh- shows up, you know, like this New Testament passage. Uh, it well, it I just really tell you something about that I, because you're making me remember 
when I was in Cairo with an Egyptian guide and we were walking through the Coptic churches, the Christian churches, Mm -hmm. and they're next door to the Jewish synagogues, which are right around the corner from the Muslim mosques. And it's like all three cultures are, are so closely interwoven. And the guide said to me, she said, you know, when you think about it, Jesus was an Egyptian. She said his first taste of food other than his mother's milk was Egyptian food. He took his first steps on Egyptian soil, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought, yeah, that's right. You know, he lived there, just like you said, a very long time. And um, probably those memories and that, you know, that wisdom that he had when he walked into the synagogue and began teaching the teachers, you know, it, it's very interesting to me that the Egyptian and the uh, Jewish and the Christian all intertwine, you know. Well, and th- that's one of you know, the a- aspects of your book that you know I, I took away is um, you know how how much of um, you know, the e- Egyptian culture. Um, it impacted uh, Jesus's family. Where uh, they you know, were there for uh, a long time. Um, you know, like you said, you, you probably learned to walk there. You know, for, you know, the first uh, foods he, he ate were e- Egyptian uh, dishes. But you know, almost any any family's going to. Uh, uh, talk about living in a major metropolis, and you, know, you could, you know, probably just imagine, uh, you know, after uh, you know they came home from temple, you know, say Jesus is like nine. And you know, she she asked him, you know, you remember, you know, the rabbi was talking about, you know, this, you know, Moses doing this and in Egypt, and uh, you, you, you can probably hear, uh, you know, imagine Mary asking, you know, you know, you know, Jesus, do you remember, you know, when we went out to the see the Sphinx? Right. Oh, it just. It, 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 it just it seems like almost any family, you know, if you were living in a um, naval base, air force base, you know, probably, you know, families probably uh, ask their kids that. You, know, you remember, you know, when uh, you know we lived in Italy or some some place like that. Right, right. It, it, right. You, know, you just really put things into perspective. Mm. I really think the world is such an interesting place. You know, there's so many things that we uh, are still discovering about ourselves. Um, And to think that we're discovering, you know, I I was thinking about those um, in Saqqara. Did you see the recent Netflix show um, on the tombs in Saqqara that they have found? 
Um, no, I, found... I, I, I missed that. I, I, I'm familiar with the Saqqara uh, uh, pyramid, but I, I, I did not see uh, the, the, the movie you're referencing. Okay. Just that culture, Saqqara, which is just down the road from Giza, just down the road from the uh, synagogue that became a, a church where Mary and Joseph and Jesus hid uh, there's actually a well that they drew their water from in that particular church. And so this place, Saqqara, is just down the road from there. And it has had burial grounds. It's like the necropolis from the third dynasty all the way up to the Ptolemaic era, you know, to when Jesus was walking the earth, you know. Um, and so this uh, this place has had all of this sacred knowledge there for so many years. And, you know, it's interesting to me that there are ancient, there are ancient Egyptian wisdom keepers, or I would say modern Egyptian wisdom keepers of the ancient knowledge that still live in these communities, and we can still meet them. You know, I met a man named Hakim, and he knew things that astounded me, you know, um, very magical and wonderful things. And so it's not surprising that the culture would have kept these traditions and that a man like Jesus would have been, or a child like Jesus would have been interested in that, you know? And when these temples were... In, in their heyday, uh, maybe um, uh, let's say when uh, uh, Moses is there, um, uh, possibly when uh, uh, the reign of the Ptolemies or you know, uh, when. Mm-hmm. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were there. Yeah, you know, uh, they may uh, they may have seen some of the remnants of uh, uh, the the paints on the exterior of these uh, temples, and you know, uh, you know, talk about you know the hieroglyphs are also uh, painted. You know, so it. It would have been um, very uh, striking uh, architectural features to, uh, uh, you know, just to see them now. But you know, when they're uh, you know co- covered in paints, it, I'm sure it would have been even more striking. Uh, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the the uh, colors that were used on the buildings? Sure, sure. They were made of, uh, by and large, they were made of crushed up, the paint was crushed up gemstones. So like crushed up turquoise, crushed up carnelian, uh, crushed up lapis lazuli, uh, crushed up jimson, um, and of course gold that was on some of the the pillars and the faces of the buildings. Um, 
quite beautiful. And they are discovering, even now, they are finding a way to, they were smoke damaged is what happened after the sands had drifted into the old temples. And then people began to stay inside the temple and build fires and keep warm, you know, in the wintertime and damage the smoke, damage the ceilings. And so everyone just thought that everything, you know, the temples had turned black and that's all that there was. Well, these folks in the last decade or so have figured out how to clean the smoke off those uh, and the ceilings without damaging the paint. And when they did that, they look exactly as if they had been painted yesterday because they were painted with gemstones and the colors never faded. Um, so it's an amazing to see even now. Even now, it's amazing to see. I'm, I'm sure it is. And there, there were, um, well, actually, uh, colorful place. Uh, the you know we we're talking about the healers and right priests. and they use color uh, it, for this, healing. It, yeah, so much of the culture uh, radiated. Across the uh, Mediterranean, uh, obviously it leaves a has left a um, lasting impact for uh, five thousand years, and uh, one of the symbols that. Um, is it's, you know, it's still used uh, today? It is um, the the lotus symbol. You yeah yeah. Can right. can you tell us a little bit about the lotus? Well, the, the ubiquitous lotus. lotus. Yes, it has a wonderful mythology behind it. Um, the lotus is a symbol. There's a god whose name is Nefertum who wears upon his head a lotus flower. Uh, and it is a blue lotus flower. And Nefertum, his name means the perfected one or the complete being. Um, and he is a human figure. He's not like a jackal or a hawk. He's uh, a young man who is the child of the lion goddess Sekhmet and the um, god Ptah, who is uh, like Osiris. He's mummified, he, um, or he's wrapped up like a mummy, but he's one of the creators of the world, and he's the one who spoke the world into being. And his name is Ptah. And uh, his, got, his consort was Sekhmet, the lioness. Now, their child wears the lotus on his head um, because he's the combination of uh, how, how it's been said is the masculine feminine and the feminine masculine. 
so it's a perfected one because he has all of the qualities. Um, but also, Ptah is a god of of language and speech, and Sekhmet is a god goddess of willpower. And so, when you combine your willpower and your speech together, you uh, you create you can create from the heart. Okay, which is what Nefertum is. Uh, he's an image of, um, uh, I guess you would call like a, a magical being who creates from the heart through his will and through his mind. And um, yeah, so Nefer means beautiful and Tem means completion, the beautiful completion. So when a lotus is, uh, comes up on the surface in the daylight as the sun is coming up and the the lotus rises and floats on top of the water and opens itself up. When the sun sets, it closes up and sinks down beneath the waters at night so that it is always uh, a flower that responds to the light, okay? Um, so that is another quality of the lotus. The other thing is that it is, um, you know, of course we heard about the lotus eaters, you know, in uh, Odysseus. And so that's the lotus they're speaking of because it had kind of uh, soporific qualities or sometimes hypnagogic qualities to it. It could put you in a, in a trance if you ate the lotus. And um, so probably you see all the beautiful people at, uh, the banquets with the lotus on top of their heads, you know, and I'm sure they were probably slightly intoxicated and having a great time. Um, yeah, it was it was mm-hmm. a plant of ease and goodness, and uh, there wasn't, you know, when where the lotus was, there was not a lot of sorrow. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, and, and if you know, people have enjoyed the you know, variety of topics we've discussed over the last seventy-five minutes, um, that you know, how can they you know, get a hold of you about? your trips hopefully all this travel Mm. stuff and and the virus uh, is going to be over real soon so we can get back to um having a normal life and yeah we get out and travel again well yeah it when it all started i was in egypt uh in march and i was supposed to have two trips back to back and we only made one of them (laughs) So we are planning on going back in September of 2021. Uh, feel that that's safe enough in the future that people will be able to get vaccines and uh, travel. I already see people traveling to Egypt. We were traveling even then very carefully. You know, you were you were taking your uh, wipes with you, and every time we went out, you know, we would wipe down the seats where we were sitting at the restaurants. You know, we had our masks on 
And when we got back mm-hmm. to the boat, we would wipe down everything. So we were, we were very cautious. And probably that's going to continue for a while, but I don't think that should stop anyone from traveling. Um, and so if they want to get in touch with me, they can go two different places. Uh, my website, which is normandyellis.com, and then twoladiestravelco.com, um, and that is the uh, company I have with my friend Osset Roan, who is the photographer. And um, we are, we have right now maybe five more spaces available for people to go in September. Uh, We will also be going in March and November of next year. Um, And so I'll try to do two a year, spring and and fall. It's about a two-week tour. Uh, We start in Cairo between the paws of the Sphinx uh, at dawn. I love to start that way. It just really gets you in the mood for being in Egypt. And then we'll go to Saqqara and see what's there. We'll probably spend all day there. Um, We'll fly up to Aswan. Usually, if we start in Aswan, we get on the boat. uh, We go to see the Temple of Isis at Philae, and then we'll sail down from Elephantine uh, to Luxor, stopping at various temples along the way. We spend about five to six days on the water. And then wow. we, yeah, it's really nice. It's a pretty nice trip. Um, and then we go back to Cairo and um, go into town so you can see what the town looks like. We'll go into the Great Pyramid at night. Um, we have private visits at the Temple of Isis between the paws of the Sphinx and inside the Great Pyramid. So that's usually what we do. And everywhere else, you know, we try to time it so there's not a lot of company there so that we can spend as much time as we want. Valley of the Kings and so on. Okay. You you do... um, Okay, you do cover in your book, uh, you know, this would kind of corresponds with uh, you know, your trip at, uh, down the knob, but you, know, you also do uh, talk about to El Kaif, the city of vulture goddess. Uh, oh, yes. Y- oh, y- yes, uh, oh, yeah, what's the story there? Uh, El Cobb, yeah. Cobb, that is okay, off, I'm sorry. El Cobb, yeah. That's off the beaten path. That is not on the Nile. So you have to get in a Jeep and uh, travel across the wadis and into the um, eastern desert. Is it the eastern desert, I think? Yeah, it's the eastern desert. And um, there's an old... Um, dried up riverbed apparently there was water in it you know pre-dynastically and there are these big petroglyphs on the rock walls that are images of uh, Thoth 
and uh, the vulture goddess and the cow goddess and the boats floating down the river, which is now a dry bed of of stone and sand. Um, It's quite an amazing thing to see, you know, to see these big petroglyphs that mark the site. It's almost like you can imagine a an uh, ancient billboard saying, stop here, you know, <laughs> have, okay. have the goddess bless your, your cattle and your, your, you know, sheep and all of that, you know, get in line. <laughs> it's really a sweet little place. And there's a old temple there that has a wall and the wall is all that remains around it. Um, and one stone structure in the middle, but uh, it's quite a big plaza. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, and at at one point it used to be uh, what tropical, but you know, like you said, it's in the eastern Savannah, deserts. Yeah. It's yeah, just um, the microclimate has greatly changed. Yeah, the savannah used to be, I mean, that uh, Libya used to be a savannah. And it, and probably around 20,000 BC, this is this is before what we would think of as Egyptian culture, but there were whales that were swimming around in uh the eastern desert and when it all dried up, they got stuck there. And so you can go to this place called the Valley of the Whales. It's probably near Libya. I guess you can't go to it right now. I would love to go, but it's so close to the Libyan border, they don't let you go there anymore. But there are whale bones there. Um, And what's interesting about them is that some of them, some of the older ones, look like they have, the whales have vestigial feet. I mean, it's not just flippers. They almost look like feet you know, with, uh, you know, ankle hinges, sort of very interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds really fascinating. And, and in your book, you also talk about the importance of Heliopolis and it's on, it seems like it's on your, uh, you know, one of your stops for your trip. Uh, what what is at Heliopolis? Well, Heliopolis is um, Heliopolis is actually Cairo now. It was the old city of Heliopolis, the city of the light. Uh, this the origin of Ra. And um, that is Giza then became the necropolis of Heliopolis. All the cities are on the uh, eastern side and all the uh, necropolis or graveyards are on the western side. So that's kind of how that looks. There's not a whole lot left of Heliopolis anymore. Um, We went to Hermopolis. And that was interesting. That's, um, oh, it's not exactly in Middle Egypt, but it's a little further south than Giza. 
and um, it has it's near. There's another place called Benny Hassan. They're places that are not often gone to on the normal itinerary. They're kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of more rural. Um, you can get there by train or you get there by bus, but they don't have any airports there. Well, when you go to Hermopolis, this is the city. This was the city that was dedicated to thought and to um, all of the high priests and scribes who studied uh, the Emerald Tablets. Um, Pythagoras studied there. He studied mathematics there. Um, You know, Pythagoras floated around Egypt for years and years and years trying to get someone to teach him something. And finally, he went to become a an initiate at Hermopolis. And that's where, you know, he learned everything that he knew about mathematics and, and astronomy and alchemy and, you know, a lot of the sciences he learned there, as well as the hieroglyphs and the language. And then he went back to Samoa in um, Greece and started his school. And thus we have the theorem of Pythagoras, you know, that we all have to learn in high school. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, he, uh, he, he's a uh, prominent name in uh, out of prehistory. And, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I think uh, Barbara and I kind of missed those days in high school uh, since we, you know, nightlight doesn't do math, but uh, except for when she talks about she's going to double my salary, I know what the <laughs> final answer is. But uh, well, I could get you a, I could get you hooked up with a guy who does sacred geometry. Maybe you'd like it. <laughs> yeah, that might be a little bit more my style, but uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, some of these other stops uh, is is the Abydos Temple is that the one that has the um, long flight of steps up to it, and there are a number of uh, archways cut into the hillside. Yes, it, well, it, it, it has a long it has a long flight of steps up to it. Yes, it does. And it has, I think, gosh, now I'm trying to remember the number. I think seven different shrines, like there's a shrine to Ptah, there's a shrine to Isis, one to uh, Osiris, uh, one to Horus, you know, et cetera, et cetera, so, uh, one to Sekhmet. So there are all these different shrines that is one of the temples that has multiple shrines, and it's where the old temple of Osiris is the original temple of Osiris, the one that was supposedly built pre-dynastically. And if you go around back, you can see where there is the flower of life, you know, that beautiful image of the flower of life that has been Mm -hmm. pressed into one of the pillars. What's amazing about it is it's not engraved. It is not painted. It is not tattooed, but somehow it's almost like it's laser-imposed upon the stones. 
themselves. It's very interesting. And um, behind that temple, there are seven boats. There's a lot of prehistoric um, burial grounds uh, where the kings are buried with their uh, sailing vessels. And this is about like seven miles away from the river at this point. Um, But there they are out in the middle of the desert. And uh, they're pre-dynastic. So you're thinking, well, the river must have gone there too at some point, you know, and then it dried up and to its current channel. But it's quite interesting place to be. It has the king's list. And those uh, ships are uh, visible? Well, they were buried, you know, like they buried the ship to take them with them. But they were seagoing vessels because you can tell by the ore marks on the wood itself that they were used at one time to, and that they Mm. were great big ships. They were seagoing. They were not just paddle boats up and down the Nile. Wow. Okay, that's it. Yeah, that... Um fascinated by that uh, naval engineering yeah but, yeah uh, and you know, the prehistoric people uh, n- knew what they were doing when, yeah and, and uh, well, speaking of uh, prehistoric advanced cultures um, did you um, agree with a lot of uh, I don't just say uh, John Anthony West's um, theories that you know these were some ancient people who really uh, had their act together and. Uh, you know, you know what he you know would say today. You know, like uh, you know the quackademics, you know, really can't <laughs> understand. He got his word. Yeah, yeah the quackademics. Yeah, I, I I I I pay close attention to what he, he <laughs> said. Uh, you know, when I chance to uh, meet with him and talk talk with him later, but. He, 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 yeah, he, he, he just, um, uh, just really disgusted with the way people today minimalize the, these astounding achievements that the, the ancient Egyptians were responsible for. You're right, and you know, I really loved John West. I was so sorry that he passed in the spirit. Uh, felt like too early to me. I know he was older, but I, I was a great admirer of John West and loved to go to Egypt when he was in Egypt. Uh, would run run into him. We'd cross paths often at the Temple of Isis, and we'd sit there yep. and drink coffee and pet the cats and feed them ho-hos <laughs> and uh, talk about the quackademics, you know. <laughs> so... Yeah, I definitely am a big fan of John West's work. 
Uh, his book, Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt, I bought two copies of it. And one copy I broke the spine on, and I would take the pages of the book out and stick them in my back jeans pocket so that I would have, if somebody asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, I would have the answer at my hip, you know, because John West always knew. <laughs> Interesting story. Yeah, he... Uh, yeah, he, he's a um, very pleasant guy. I didn't, you know, ha- have a chance to feed uh, ho hos to cats, but uh, you know, with them, you know, just uh, talking. You know, the one day I had a chance to uh, talk to him at at a conference and uh, doing a show with him. You know, uh, you know we had a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, nice, he was a nice guy. guy. And, um, um, I, what was it? You just said something about continued uh, a discussion, uh, discussion about uh, the Lotus, and which reminded me that. Uh, do, do cover the zodiacal ceiling at uh, the, the Temple of Hathor, and yeah. it, it go into the uh, Tree of Life uh, I- image that shows up, and, and, and then you, you uh, go into a little segue into yeah, it's basically like. Um, uh, you know, Jacob's ladder, right? Can, can, right. Can, can, you know, so if you know we're on this, uh, uh, go on this tour with you, you know, uh, next year, or you know, we're just reading, uh, in in your book, or you know, listening along uh, with, with with the show tonight, uh, you know, what's the importance of this uh, tree of life imagery. Okay. Um, Well, a couple of things. First of all, the ladder uh, to heaven, which we ascend uh, as in accordance with the pyramid text that's in the old kingdom in the pyramid of Unus, it discusses the ladder that is raised up to heaven that is held on one side by Horus, the son of Osiris, and on the other side by Set. And these are like two opposing factions. But what's interesting about this is that you could think of something as positive and negative poles, but you have to have both sides holding the rung before you can go up it. Because if there's only one, one side, then there's no way to ascend. Uh, so balance obviously is the whole, uh, the middle path or the middle pillar, what we call the middle pillar of the tree of life is the way to ascend to heaven. It's the way spirit moves. Um, And so that's actually a demonstration of the law of polarity that the Egyptians were really good with understanding. Polarity is not yes, no. 
necessarily. It's like two variant aspects of one quality, you know. It's like hot and cold are uh, both qualities of temperature, and you don't you don't want too hot or too cold. You want up the middle, right? So that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you learn when you're looking at, you know, the fight between Horus and Set for who rules the land, okay? Um, and the truth of the matter is that both of them, there has to be a compromise for them, and that's the way the myth turns out, is that there's a compromise between Horus and Set. Um, now, the latter actually becomes the body of Osiris. It, it begins to look like the, you know, you've seen that image of the Jed pillar, and the Jed pillar, mm-hmm. they call it the backbone of Osiris, and it's divided into four layers. And the backbone of Osiris, you could think of it like like uh, the chakra system in a way, you know. Um, the lower part is the physicality. Then there's uh, another plane that's the astral plane or the emotional plane um, that's kind of like linked to the gut area, you know. Then there's the uh, mental plane, which is linked to the heart area. And then there's the spiritual plane that would be kind of linked to your crown chakra, sort of. So you could think of the body of Osiris as having these components. And inside the body of Osiris are these nine spiritual bodies that are all inside his body. So that's the tree of life. Um, And the Kabbalists uh, were pretty much... Uh, understood it one way, but, you know, I was able to place these sacred bodies in alignment and under, began to understand how they worked together. So it's kind of something that I came up with, but that I believe everyone I've told it to sees that it's inherent in it. You know, now the ladder of heaven in the pyramid text is, um, you know, it's, uh, the Ba flies up the ladder of heaven to go and commune with the ancestors to receive the information about what the spiritual plan is, what the Akashic records say the spiritual plan is. And then the Ba soul flies back down the ladder and comes out, uh, re-inhabits the body, and then the Pharaoh's Ba re-inhabits him, and then he enacts the wisdom that he has learned while he has ascended this ladder uh, in in his uh, trance uh, shamanic flight. You know? So it's a very interesting text, and it doesn't mm-hmm. quite appear the same way in the Old Kingdom, but it does in the new in the New Kingdom as it does in the Old Kingdom. So okay, okay. So it's just uh, uh, cultural changes uh, over time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think and, there was a deeper shamanic culture in the old kingdom than there was in the new kingdom. Though I could be wrong about that. There's some really interesting shamanic stories about Ramsey the second, Ramsey the great son, who was a shaman. So. Hmm. Okay. 
I don't know. We're unfortunately approaching only like 20 minutes left in the show. But, um, you know, I Are my wanted thoughts to... wandering, Mark? Are my thoughts wandering too much? No, it's getting late. Uh, no, it, it's just uh, uh, fascinating. It's, you know, uh, unfortunately, we only have you know, t- 20 minutes or, or so. I, 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 I'm, I'm just having, having a great time. It, it's, it, okay. you know, um, uh, just wanted to make it, um, uh, interesting, um, you know, try to tie in an interesting point that, uh, that kind of becomes a theme throughout your book is um, at the start of the show, you're talking a little bit about the um, um, spirit of the hieroglyphs, how much more uh, emphasis was placed on the culture, uh, you know, like they really valued the language um, and, yeah. and use of the language. And, uh, and I also draw attention to uh, here, you know, back to, uh, you know, the book of John again in, uh, in the fourth chapter, he just uh, spoke about uh, God as spirit, as well as um, at the start of uh, the book of John, in, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So it's basically... Almost like the uh, in the early on in the New Testament, it's just really uh, another concept being carried on uh, from from ancient Egypt. Yeah, you know the um, we talked a little bit about there's two gods that. Uh, create with out of desire. You know, Ptah creates mm. out of his desire by speaking it into being. Because because he's mummified, you know, he has no hands to make anything with. and But he has this blue globe on top of his head, which is, you know, and it's filled with, it's lapis lazuli and it has these gold flakes in it. And uh, it's like kind of the starlight in the deep blue sky and the way you imagine the synapses between your brain sparking, you know. And so you can see this in the God's image. And his hieroglyph is written with a pair of lips speaking and light is springing from his lips. And um, I always thought it was fun that his name, Ptah, P-P-H, is kind of like Patui, you know, <laughs> because it's like he fits he spits out light, and that's what creates the world. Now, that appears in John. But in Genesis, 
we have um, we have the image of God making humanity out of clay, making life out of clay, and the story that story uh, of Yahweh is very similar to the story of a god named Kanum, who's a ram-headed god, and he shapes people on his potter's wheel out of clay. And the interesting thing about that is that on the island of Elephantine, when you go and you tour it, you can see where Kanum's temple was on this island. And it's entirely you know, built layer upon layer upon layer of mud when the flood came down and it hit this cataract. And so it would build up over thousands of years, these layers of mud. Well, there was also on the other side of the island, a temple that the Jewish people had to Yahweh who built his people out of clay. So on this one island, you have two of the same stories. You know, and Yahweh has a consort the same way that Kanum has, um, named the Shekinah. And so you can see that there's this place there. When you're walking on the island, it's really fun. You can walk up like you're walking through the layers of time, and you look back down, and you can see this little town that's like got um, the houses where the Jews live, and you can see where there's like a bakery down there you know you can see the ovens and stuff and um, it's really quite fascinating to think that this these two cultures live side by side and they tell a similar story of creation both of them you know and there were other Uh creator gods there was a goddess who was a goddess of creation named Neith and she uh, her dress was a net and she pulled uh, she pushed her net into the sea and she pulled up you know, all the things of the world and the sea and the oceans and the air, and that's how she made the world. Um, and she becomes related, actually, to Athena um, in the Greek culture. So, yeah, okay. Thoth, Thoth is, is the mathematician. He creates the world in a cauldron of uh, snakes and frogs, and he stirs this cauldron up and he looks in it, and he's and he has this little chant that he says, first I was one, then I was two, then I was four, then I was eight, then I was one again. And it sounds like he's seeing cells dividing, you know. First I was one, then I was two, then I was four, uh-huh. then I was eight, then I was one again. It's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. 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 It, um, oh, we're approaching you know, about 10 minutes left you know and, and I want you know there are just so, so many different topics that um, you know we can continue to get into Ho- hopefully um, you know it didn't scare you off and uh, uh, you know we can get into your scribes book it, it, in the new year, before you go on <laughs> your trip, and then you, 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 you'll be back with Barbara. But uh, is there anything uh, that 
you want to cover from from your book and you know just uh, comment on it. I, you know something that you know, oh, we didn't uh, get to or I, I I overlooked. Oh, um, let's see. Yeah, that there are a deck of cards that go with the book, the hieroglyphic words of power. If you would mm-hmm. like the deck of cards, they are photographs. Um, they can be found at um, the Goddess Inside Must Have Books. You can go on my website or you can go on the Goddess Inside, which is Offset Roan's uh, website, and you can order the cards, uh, the deck of cards. Now, in the book, I also have uh, various layouts to use that are based on uh, the Egyptian uh, kind of Egyptian imagery, like the boat of Ra is the great called the Great Ennead, and it's nine different cards that you use for a layout. There's the zodiac of Dendera that you can use for a layout. There's the tree of life, like the dead pillar, you can use as a layout. And then there's the Ogdoid, which are the eight cards of uh, thought. So Anyway, it's all explained in the book how to use the the deck for readings as well. Okay, and um, we should give your website one more time. But, yeah, okay. both your both your websites again. Okay, it's normandyellis.com. Uh, the Travel company is two ladies dot com, and then Offset Roan's website is thegoddessinside.com. dot com. Okay, sounds great. Um, you know, if you know people were considering going on. Uh, your trip uh, is it, you know, how's the uh, food? Is it safe? You, you know, is there any? Oh yeah, we um, every trip that I take, I have a private dahabea, which is like a little sailing yacht. It, it only has about sixteen people on it, which is our group. So you're not you know, with groups of people that you don't know and you might get, get you know, sick from or something. Um, we have a private chef. Uh, he's usually a really great cook most often. Uh, you can get just about anything you want. We make sure that if somebody has uh, food allergies that we know in advance and we tell the chef, don't make this, you know, make this mm-hmm. instead. Um, sometimes we even bring special food. Uh, we bring a medical kit. Everywhere we go, we have a medical kit. So if somebody takes a spill, we've got something to wrap their ankle in or whatever. Um, And really, it's pretty, Egypt is a good place to travel in. Um, The folks are fairly friendly. Um, It's easy to find a pharmacy if you need one. It's easy to find a bank if you need one. I always tell people to change their money at the airport and then, um, you know, in in Luxor, 
before they go home. So that's, yeah. Okay. And uh, people would need to get a passport? Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. But you buy, you can buy your visa there. You don't need to buy your visa before you go. But you do need a current passport. And I believe at this time they are requiring that uh, we have COVID tests that are taken within the 48 hours before we arrive at the airport. So that's that's good. That means they're being proactive. Okay. Um, you know, we still have a few more minutes left. Um, you know, a lot of people you know, are familiar with the uh, title, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. What is it? What are the contents? Oh, that's a whole that's a whole other show. But in brief, I will tell you that the Book of the Dead is not what they call it. The Egyptian ancient Egyptians called it the Book of Coming into Light, and so it's really a manual of seeking higher consciousness. It's just they called it the Book of the Dead because we found it under the arms of dead people and written, you know, (laughs) written and put in their coffins. But it actually is called the Book of Coming into Light. Totally gives you a different spin on what's inside it. It's it's um, it's best read while you're alive, so that you know you're not having any surprises when you enter into the ex extraterrestrial life. Okay. Uh, it, it, you do mention the emerald tablets, and uh, yeah, that topic does come up from time to time yes. in yes. Uh, the, the discussions. Uh, uh, are those tablets uh, on display somewhere? Is it just no. like some something no, out of not. legend? Uh, like do. Uh, you know, they've been documented uh, as, you know, Socrates they, um, actually saw them. No, well, yes and no. The story is that um, they were handed down. They were uh, handed down from the uh, Atlantis to the Egyptians that the Greeks had them at one time, but that they were lost and destroyed in uh, the Library of Alexandria's destruction. Now, Uh. lo and behold, sometime during the Middle Ages, uh, I think it was Ficino, I think is his name, maybe, I don't know, but sometime during the Middle Ages, one of those fellas from the Medici family showed up with uh, what he said was an emerald tablet, and that was the one that was translated. Um, so basically, it it is either a copy of the real thing, or it is an alchemical text. Okay, I just want 
Yeah, but, had, but either way, so, it's got some great wisdom in it. Okay, I'm just jotting that down. No, I, you know, just it's you know just one of those topics that you know, uh, researchers mention from time to time, and. Uh, right. Um, right. and, and a lot of us will say that it's an actual thing and we'll talk about it as if it's an actual thing. But if your question was, can we see a copy of it? The answer is no. <laughs> okay. Well, I just, uh, um, I, don't, I understand where you're going. Just, uh, and, and, uh, you know, as we're winding down time, just, you know, you know, we should have done a three-hour show. But uh, uh, what do you think of the uh, <laughs> like that? That's why we're ha- having you co- come back more. Uh, yeah, great. But gonna... uh, you know, uh, you, you know, we're su- surprisingly uh, get, getting through the, the, this show with a lot of ease on Friday the thirteenth. So it, it, I, maybe we broke the jinx. I think so. I think so. We did, we had all the terrible stuff happen on Tuesday. Yeah, so we're just uh yeah, get you know, just moving uh forward with a more op- optimistic view as uh you know, we talk about ancient Egypt. But um yeah, uh, in you know, the last like ninety seconds or so. Uh, uh, what, what do you think about the uh, you know, s- supposed li- library under the Sphinx's uh, paw? Um, well, I don't know if there's a library there, but I have seen things under the Sphinx's paw. I had a friend who actually went down that hole with a camera and took pictures of it with John West and uh, Boris Said, who is both. They're both dead now, but Ray is still around. And he showed me photographs of um, what he took down there. And there was a sonogram that showed that there were rooms beneath rooms beneath rooms, three rooms under each other. But one of the rooms had water in it, and so they couldn't really figure out what was in the lower chamber because if they drilled down there, the water would flood it. But there was no water in it. So it's kind of interesting. Okay, so uh, we're going to have to um, s- stop there. We're just about out of time. Uh, ch- check out m- more about Normandy Ellis at normandyellis.com. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, and we will see you uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.